0: Okay, welcome back to another year and another episode of the USET podcast, where we talk about all things Utah education and technology. I'm Kira Bettis as your host. I'd like to take a second and introduce our guests for this episode. Trent Meixel currently works as a secondary ELA specialist in Nebo School District. Prior to that, he worked in a high school, a junior high, and a middle school, and has taught almost all secondary grades except for 10th. He and his wife also teach online for BYU-Idaho. His greatest passion is reading. Go follow him on Goodreads. Carol Shackelford has been a social studies teacher for Bingham High for 15 years. She also taught debate for 10 years and is currently an advisor for student government. She loves all things cooking and baking related. Deborah Gattrell is a veteran, a Utah teacher fellow alumna, and a social studies teacher with 14 years of experience in Granite School District where she currently serves as a department chair and a mentor in her school. For our second episode, we are talking about how to use technology to find, organize, and curate educational resources in the liberal arts with our guests, Trent, Carol, and Deborah. We are so excited to get into the discussion with them today. Welcome to our the USET podcast. Um, today's, or rather, this month's focus is how to use technology to find, organize, and curate educational resources. And so, I wanted to kind of focus this um, by looking at the liberal arts. And so, I've gathered a group of people that teach history and English, and we're going to talk about. This topic and see where the conversation takes us so um, just to do a quick introduction um, if you want to share what take a second to introduce yourself and since it is the season what is your favorite halloween costume that you've either seen or that you've dressed up yourself and i know we didn't prepare that so you can have a second to think but trent ready to go yeah
1: so my favorite halloween costume you said yeah, um, I am Trent Saw. I work in the Eagle School District. I've uh, been in the classroom for 15 years, and now I work at the our district office as a curriculum specialist in English and also in social studies. Um, and I love Goodreads, and I love to read. So come find me on Goodreads. I'd love to talk to you about books. But um, my favorite costume that I dressed up as, as and I always say his name wrong, which is embarrassing, but D- Dobby from Harry Potter. Am I saying it right? I always want to say Dobie, but um, I think it's Stubby. So I love dressing up as him and it was very funny. We dressed up as Harry Potter at our school one year, all different Harry Potter costumes. Right.
2: I can go. Um, my name is Carol Shackleford, and this is my 15th year of teaching at Bingham High School. I've taught social studies the entire time. I've also coached high school debate and currently a student government advisor. Um, you can find me on the weekends doing anything cooking related or baking related all from scratch and just trying to challenge myself in a way that doesn't get met like in the classroom. And in terms of Halloween, well, although it's not like my favorite holiday at all. So perhaps for me, it's just dressing up like a cat. I know it sounds very cliche, um, but again, it's just not my, my holiday, my, my event to really like get into.
3: Okay, so my term, uh, I am Deborah gatrell This is lucky 13 for me, my 13th year teaching high school social studies. I'm in Granite School District. Uh, I'm a veteran and so military service fills most of my free time, haha. And uh, also a Utah teacher fellow alumni. And I'm a department chair and mentor in my school right now. As far as favorite Halloween costume, um, Halloween's not really my favorite holiday either. I mean, it's cool. People can dress up. It's fun. Gay can be. But my favorite costume as a kid, because I was going to grow up and be an astronaut, was the year my mom made me an astronaut outfit. And I was so excited. Best costume ever, because it was like my dream come true. Uh, I didn't end up being an astronaut, but it's okay. I do really cool things instead, and I'm still happy. So that's that.
0: Love that. Um, my favorite.
3: So I don't like love all
0: of Halloween, but I do love dressing up. And my favorite costumes are basically anything that I can wear a crown in. Um, so it doesn't matter what it is, as long as I can. Uh, yeah, that's it's my only excuse. Like one day a year when I can actually get away with it. So that's that's why I like Halloween. Um, okay, so let's dive into our question, our discussion today. Um, and it's and I kind of rearranged some of the question order, but. This is going to be a broad one, but why study liberal arts? And liberal arts meaning social science, art, and literature. So if you had to kind of defend your content area, what would be your reasons for why study
2: the liberal arts? Carol? For me, I think it's everything that applies to. So I teach U.S. government. I teach AP comparative government and AP government and also psychology. So I think... Or regular government. So I feel like all of those things are courses where students will ask themselves, will I ever need to know this information? And the answer is absolutely. You're definitely going to need to know all of that information. So rather than students feeling like they're in a classroom where they have to learn it just because they're told to learn it, I feel like kids are more excited in liberal arts type classes or social science classes or classes because it is so applicable and you can use real world situations. In everyday lessons, so they get excited about it, um, especially because they learn more about themselves or where they're going to go.
3: Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'll play off that, and I completely second everything Carol just said. But I also want to go back to the origin of the term. Right, it comes from from Latin and liberalis. You know, for being liberal, for being free. It's it's really the education that's worthy of a free man. And so you go back to ancient times, not everybody got this. Not everybody was worthy of this. And you know, our thinking about education and, and who is capable and should have opportunities has completely changed. And everyone should have an opportunity to learn how to think. And that's what liberal arts teaches you. You know, it's one thing to learn a skill, to learn a trade, to learn STEM things. And they're important, right? I'm not dissing on STEM per se, but if all you do is STEM, you don't know how to think. You don't know how to solve a problem. You don't know how to function in the world with other people. And what could be more important than that? You know, Google's done some studies on their most effective teams. And everyone assumed that, you know, the computer engineers and the programmers, those would be the best teams, the most productive and the most effective. And they found out that was not true. The teams that had people with a liberal arts education were more effective because they're better with people, they're better at understanding problems and solving them. And so they're more productive and more effective. So anytime people bag on liberal arts education because it doesn't get you to a job, I point at the people who are saying that and say, really, what kind of education do you have? And they all have liberal arts educations and they've been very successful because they can solve problems and function in a wide range of difficult situations because of the background that they have in critical thinking. That's essential. And we're giving it the short shaft in a lot of ways right now.
1: I absolutely agree with all of that. I do think this is a good question because it's the question we get asked every single day as teachers. Why do I have to learn this? (laughs) Um, But I would also add that empathy and learning empathy is a huge part of liberal arts and learning stories and being able to connect to other human beings because of that. Most of life is gray and nuance. And I think liberal arts teaches you to think through those things critically like, uh, sorry, it's not Teresa, Deborah said. um, and, And so I think that's very important.
0: Yeah. And it makes me think of like, no matter how far the technology advances, there always is going to be a human component to that. And if we forget that, then I think it can lead us to some really dark places. And so it's always important to remember the the human aspect of it. And I think liberal arts, like what all of you said, they get at the heart of what it means to be human. And we can't forget that. Like there's a danger if we do. Um, so how does a broad liberal arts education fit inside of a 21st century classroom? Everyone. And I just want to
3: so I'll start out on that one. I really think it's about balance, right? Uh, the, the modern world that we live in and the technology that we have to deal with, it's important to have some education in how to function with those tools, right? STEM is absolutely part of what we have to do nowadays. Coding is great. These things are important, but they're not the end all be all. I think it goes back to that concept of balance and applying critical thinking and liberal arts and the human aspect of everything that we do
1: in those situations. And I, sorry, and I I think that it absolutely connects in every way. I think that, I mean, a lot of the problems that we're seeing in some ways are because people aren't looking at issues critically and aren't thinking about, you know, what are the ramifications of this? Where, Where are the facts? Where is, you know, how are people interpreting those facts? All of those things that we're taught to do in history and in English, um, and so I think it helps us to think about what we're seeing in the world and we're just, you know, there's a deluge of information. There for me. We need to learn how to figure yeah. it out.
0: Um, yeah. I also agree. Like, I think that I would argue that they're more important than ever. Um, but I think part of the problem, what we're seeing is that it's hard to quantify these skills. It's hard to put them into a data set or on a, a graph, right? And so it's hard to defend them to policymakers that want to make like budget cuts or that want to like eliminate some of these electives is because it's hard to say like, well, yeah, they're great. And we can argue that they're great, but then it's hard to show just exactly how great, you know what I mean? T- to turn them into numbers.
2: Yeah, I do think that there's a lot of merit behind the interconnectedness that exists just between like all disciplines in education. And so if you were to just focus on one particular side of education, I feel like there would be something that everybody would be missing out on, like not just on the critical thinking level, but just like a holistic picture of knowing so many different disciplines and then being exposed to that. I feel like, for example, I had a student email me today that she you know, was excited to be at BYU and she was convinced that she was going to become an accounting major. Uh, but now she realizes that she dislikes math and she really enjoyed being in a comparative government class. And you know, when she was thinking about, okay, I want to make a shift. I want to pivot. I want to change my major. And she kept on coming back to her. What were some of the more interesting classes that she had exposed or had been exposed to while in high school And it came down to like her comparative government class and so now she wants to become an international uh, relations major and so if students don't have access to those different types of disciplines then they'll never really know if either they'll find a college program that's right for them or even want to stay in higher levels of education because of
3: it. I think another thing to consider is the fact that uh, we, we can really get wrapped around the axle on measuring things. And I understand that measuring things is important and it has a place, but oftentimes with education, when it comes to the the soft skills, if you will, and, and the things that we bring to the table with the liberal arts, we have a tendency to get caught in the trap of measuring things that are easy to measure. Mm-hmm. And then those become the most important things, even though they're not the most important things, because the most important things are hard to measure. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, it's it's a trap that we fall into really quickly and very easily And the other issue that I see that liberal arts plays a role in correcting is, uh, as you pointed out, Kara, we absolutely are buried. We're drowning in in data points, right? We have so much data out there. We're very data rich, but I hesitate to use the word information because information is data that has been processed. So I think that we're actually data rich, but information poor because we're not doing a good job of processing information, which requires that thinking skill set. And, you know, that ties back to what Trent was saying, right? There's a lot of problems in the world right now that are only problems because people are not applying critical thinking skills to the information that they're being presented, which is, in fact, in many cases, incorrect or misleading. And it goes back to, you know, those skills of sourcing when you source a document, when you source a a a piece of information. Where did it come from? Who said it? Why did they say it? Why did they say it in that way? How are they targeting their audience? Am I the audience or am I, you know, a bystander? All of these things play into understanding what's happening in the world. And uh, it's, it's sad to say, but unfortunately, I think uh, we perhaps as liberal arts teachers have not done as good of job as we should have over the last 20, 30 years, because the standards that we were expected to uh, teach to were very, very low in terms of information processing. It was understand this, it was memorize that, you know, names, dates, facts, figures that hadn't necessarily been applied in a way that had utility. So the skills would then become transferable. So I'm really glad to see the updated skills that are more critical thinking based. And I love the new seed skills down in elementary school because yeah, it's science, but it's very much applied and includes elements of thinking beyond just facts. So I think we're doing a better job now and we have a real opportunity to turn things around, but then it goes back to, well, how do we measure success? I think we go to the new standards and then we have to find appropriate ways to measure those. (laughs)
1: Okay,
0: wonderful, thank you. Um, To kind of switch gears, so we we agree that liberal arts are important and um, And knowing the environment that we live in and that we teach in, uh, technology plays a role in all of our lives. So the next question I kind of want to shift to is what role do you see technology playing in the study of liberal arts? So either how do you use it personally as someone who has studied the liberal arts or how do you use it when you teach your content courses?
1: I just love the access that it gives us to a variety of different resources. And so we can use databases and we have access to stories and articles that we just really couldn't have accessed before. I mean, even when I started teaching, which wasn't that long ago, we relied on what was in the textbook or whatever novels we were able to buy. And to some extent, we still have to you know, rely on novels that we can purchase. But I mean, it's just really opened it up to to be able to use a wide variety of things and also to compare and contrast the value of those, which I think has a lot of value.
2: So I I like the use of technology and I agree with Trent in terms of like how much easier things are in terms of accessibility. I mean, before the internet or before the ability to really just like Google a lot of things You know, you're really at the mercy of like whatever your college campus had access to or um, even your school, like in the beginning, right? Like there were only so many databases that were open to you. But now as more technology has been integrated into the schooling system, I feel like there's better access. You're not so limited in that regard. But also kids just know technology better than adults do. And in some ways, I think because they've been so overstimulated in the area of technology, they've come to expect it in their education and if it's not a component i feel sometimes of your teaching in some ways they're a little bored right like the idea that you can gamify learning to the point where you can make a quiz but it's on a different platform like socrative or quizzes or gimlet and and kids just think it's a game they don't know that it's a quiz but as a teacher you're able to get some instant feedback in terms of like what concepts they're understanding or not understanding, to where you know where to target your remediation and relearning for the students, uh, I think it's a great uh, tool for students to become more engaged in the learning process. But also at the same time, it's a way to have students have multiple levels, uh, where you know maybe you have some students who uh, need a little bit more time; so they can go at their own pace, um, and they don't really feel like the pressure of having everybody wait for them to work on that versus the students who are at a little more accelerated pace have the ability to go off and do something in addition to whatever it is that they have the ability to do Um, so i just fundamentally think that it's really good in terms of where it's going Um, there's so much to be able to choose from which can sometimes be a limitation with technology in that regard. But I think otherwise it's important to use it in terms of the ease of access. And then also, um, I think in some ways, the expectations that students have to at least have it presented to them in some context.
3: Yeah, so I'll add two bits to Absolutely uh, incredible access to amazing resources that just were unheard of, let alone dreamed of just 10, 20 years ago. That's for sure a thing. But the other thing to keep in mind, you know, not just with it, students who are feeling pressure to keep up and maybe students who are a little bit more advanced, you know, there are opportunities to build remediation and extensions and alternate modes of assessments into technology, assuming teachers have the time to do that. Haha, But it's a thing that you can build over time. And then the other thing to keep in mind, right? Let's not ignore the elephant in the room. We're teaching in a pandemic. We have kids that are out of the building for extended periods of time at a time. And with technology, especially with what we put together last year, um, we have the ability for students to still engage in learning from home. I mean, obviously it's not ideal for most students. That was absolutely proved abundantly clear last year. Uh, But for students who want to be engaged and not not fall behind, this is a way that they can stay engaged and continue the learning process without getting overwhelmed because they're gone for so long. So that's, that's incredible.
2: I agree. Oh, Yeah, I agree with that. So even just today, like, uh, you know, half of the cross country team, it happens to be in my third period class and they all needed to leave before I was able to lecture. We did like a, we did an activity first and they we were doing the lecture the second half of class. But I just decided that I was going to record my lecture which I have the ability to have Apple TV in my room. So I'm not stuck next to a desktop. I can bring my laptop up to the front of the room, use that to advance like any lecture slides that I'm utilizing, but I can simultaneously record my lecture and then email it to students who were missing class. And students know that if they just ask me to do that, I'll record the lecture because it's not that hard to hit the record button and then just send an email to them. And I think that's probably a perk of having had the pandemic, is to maybe have a mind shift—a mind shift happen wherein you can figure out a way to multitask in the classroom. Many many teachers may feel like that's you know adding an additional layer to like all the things they're being asked to do. Which if you're not uh, using technology every day in your classroom, I can definitely see why that's true. But on my end, I felt like it was not that hard to integrate that into the classroom and that helps keep students feeling as though they're not separated from the classroom when it's so fluid when students are in and out of the classroom these days.
0: I love, yeah, Deborah, you had an idea again.
3: I was going to say, that's a great point. It's not just when kids are sick, right? They're in and out of the building all the time for legitimate reasons. And this is just another way to continue the learning process outside the walls of the classroom. And I think that's fantastic, and we should never go back the way it was before, because we've learned from the pandemic, and we need to to hang on to the good parts.
0: I love that, and some of the thoughts that I had were very similar like the democratization of content is just so much more widespread than it ever was, like many of you talked about uh, having access access to databases, libraries, museums, like before, if you wanted to do research, you more often than not, like had to go to that place to get the resources that you needed to do the research, right? Um, but being able to technology allows us to have all have access to all of that uh, from the comfort of your own home, and then also the flexibility to tailor our content to our kids' needs and whether or not they're in the building or out of the building. Yeah, I just agree with all of the statements that have been made. Yeah, Deborah.
3: Sorry, one last pitch for technology. Um, virtual field trips. Mm. Like I can take my students anywhere in the world from the comfort of my classroom and we can do a field trip because there's all kinds of 360 videos that have been recorded. There's 360 images using Google Earth. There's all kinds of incredible content that they can have an almost immersive experience with that you could never do before. And I I need to do more of that, but it exists and it's powerful. And it's a tool that we should take advantage of in context when it's appropriate.
2: I think not only just with teaching our students, but just the access to uh, collaboration with teachers outside of the building. So I think it's expanded the concept of what a PLC looks like or what a PLC can be, especially if you happen to be, which I'm not, but if you happen to be a singleton in your building, and you're not able to go and meet with other people, I think the use of technology through like Zoom or Teams or Google Meets and like working with one another to talk about like what you're doing or what you're not doing and working together to figure out anything that could help assist you in terms of the instruction and the level of instruction that you're giving to your students. And I also like that, Deborah, that you talked about virtual classrooms or virtual field trips rather. I also like that, so our school has... Um, Virtual reality, uh, where kids are able to util- utilize, um, the VR sets, like they, they will wear them and, and you have like different subjects that we have a, a database for. So the idea that that's even accessible now in the building, cause kids think that, you know, virtual reality, it, it's new, it's newer to them. So the idea that you can bring something that is a little bit of, uh, smoke and mirrors, maybe, uh, to bringing it to like content and, and instruction gets them excited because it's a new level of engagement that they haven't seen before.
3: Right? Who doesn't love Mrs. Frizzle and the magic school bus where you get to actually be immersed in the experience, whatever it is. Uh, And to your point with the collaboration tools, I'd also point out the asynchronous collaboration that's available, right? There's even through social media, which, you know, has its place in all kinds of things. But there's a lot of collaboration that happens on those platforms as well, where people have just formed groups because they want to share content. They want to bounce ideas off each other. So it's not even limited to your district and other singletons or the state and other singletons. It's it's a, a nationwide and even an international thing. There's groups discussing the virtual reality and how to incorporate it in the classroom. There's for every subject you can imagine. And you just have to kind of tie into these and then take what applies to your context and, and you become that much better. That actually is the perfect
0: segue into the next question was, uh, how do you use technology to find, organize and curate educational resources? And that question has a lot in it, right? It, find, organize and curate are all different verbs and you can use different tools for each of those actions. Um, so I wanted to open the question up to everybody. We've talked about collaboration tools. We've talked about like uh, virtual PLNs. Um, but what what tools do you use to either like find resources on the internet or just find resources? The internet is a tool, uh, or tools that you use to organize all that. Because like Deborah said, like we are inundated with data. So how can we organize like the good stuff from the bad stuff? Um, or how do you curate that? How do you present it? What tools do you use to present it to students? Trent,
1: um, I don't know if you've heard of Google, but <laughs> you can actually search for things. It's <laughs> it's incredible. It's changed my life. Um, I love when students will write Google as their work on their work cited page. Just Google.com as their source. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Obviously, sometimes we're not doing a good job at showing them how we're pointing them to different resources. I'll put a plug-in for one particular resource. I love the resource scribble, which the state of Utah has purchased for all teachers to use. It's an excellent resource. There is a it really is quite easy to use and it really doesn't take long for either teachers or students to use, but it's a great resource to curate different things for students. For example, if I wanted to push out a bunch of different articles on a topic, um, that's quite easy to do with Scribble. If I want students to find articles on a topic and share it with me and annotate them, that's quite easy to do on Scribble. So, it just streamlines the sharing and also the annotating and all of those other things in a way that I really like. Um, Beyond that, um, I think that, you know, obviously, learning management systems has made that a made that really easy as well like canvas or google classroom and i love the ability to just immediately pull in articles and things like that that i want to talk about that day and put them in our learning management system
3: so i'll I'll segue from that Uh, learning management systems are essential some of them are easier to use than others some of them are nightmare but you do all the build up front and then you have access to the material in the future which is great so I won't point out Canvas there, but the advantage for Canvas that we've kind of figured out in my school is the ability to create a master course that everyone in any PLC or PLN has access to within the school. And it, it can be wider than that, too, where you can collaborate across you know, the digital space and put resources together and plan out a curriculum and then use it in whatever school that you happen to be at in whatever class you happen to be teaching without having to constantly reinvent the wheel. Cause that's always the frustration, having to start from scratch every year as there's new stuff, you can just update it in the canvas, however you build it. And then um, that's really easy for people to share and, and then to reuse and just update in the future.
2: For me, uh, something that hasn't been mentioned is the use of, different facebook groups so like for example if you're teaching any ap classes there are a variety of, of facebook groups that exist for each of those content areas in addition to ap classroom that's been done by the college board So it's a really good uh system on the college board side where you've got a whole test bank of questions that you can utilize or like different sort of like check-ins with the students to see if they understand different big ideas or essential knowledge or uh you know critical understanding that the college board needs them to understand to have them be prepared for the college board test which you can download and integrate into a variety of uh systems or platforms that you use in your school district. But for the Facebook groups, what I think is really cool is that they have created share drives where if you request membership to them, then you have access to all of the teachers that are also part of that Facebook group and people are putting in all of the material that they utilize or it could be somebody posting, hey, I'm struggling with this concept. You know, is there something that somebody teaches that, you know, I could use or help like I'm doing this tomorrow. I'm getting evaluated. I need something that's more engaging. Then maybe if somebody is just doing like a sit and get type of lesson plan that day. And so I really like it because it allows for you to feel a little bit more innovative because you can see what other people are doing and it either validates the work that you're doing like, oh, okay, I see it the same way, or I teach it that same way, or that's the type of activity that I am already doing. And maybe you can add an additional layer to that, or maybe it helps drive you to figure out what you aren't doing and see what other teachers are providing their students To then give you the necessary motivation or just even the ease of having it already done for you. And as people have already said, you don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel because it's right there for you. It's not like you're having to do like the teachers pay teachers or the other um, like websites that exist that really aren't great lesson plans, but they they do exist to allow for you to see the content that other people are delivering. Or it could be like different websites like icivics.org which has like a beginning to end uh, curriculum for teachers to be able to utilize that comes chalk with like the, the lesson that you give with like the content delivery, but then also here is an enrichment activity or some of, some type of activity that you can do. So I feel like those different types of resources that exist allow for you to pick and choose what works for you, but then also decide or give you the ability to figure out where to start in your teaching and what you need or don't need in terms of what is essential for learning.
3: I'm playing off that. Um, I think every content area is going to have some, some go-to resources that we should do a better job of sharing. iCivics is amazing for government kinds of things. Uh, the Facebook groups for AP, absolutely. I love the AP Euro group. They have a lot of really great stuff. I wish I had time to use all of it. Uh, I know Schoology, as something that we use in in AP or O2. And there's a lot of other uh, content areas that that have collaborative spaces there as well. So it's just a matter of letting folks know when they come into the profession, what the go-to resources are so they don't spend a lot of time just using Google and spinning their wheels trying to dig through all of the avalanche of material that's there. And, And Trent's absolutely right. We do need to do a better job of teaching students how to use Google although Google is getting better at working around students, I've, I've learned. Um, we did a unit just recently on how to do keyword searches and identify keywords. And so we're, we're getting a little better at that, but there's still a lot of just typing the question into Google and copying the answer. So more work to be done there for sure. I think uh, we are endangering ourselves when we say kids know technology, because the fact of the matter is they don't know how to use it appropriately. They just know how to like do some stuff, and we have an obligation to help them become digital citizens, not just digital natives who maybe aren't as smart as they think and we might have thought in the past.
1: Uh, I think that's a really good point, that we're, we're teaching students, and yes, they know how to do, use the things that they know how to use and want to use, but it shocks me that they still can't figure out how to italicize something in a Google Doc or something that I think would be quite simple. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go off on a tangent for just a second. I think that, and you may ask this question in a moment, but I do think that there's there's so many things. I mean, there's so much, and there's so many resources and so many different things that you could use in your classroom, at times it's overwhelming. Um, I do think it's important and valuable to take a step back sometimes and even look for simple ways to do things. I am very much invested in all of my technology. I only read books on my Kindle. Um, All my calendars are online. I mean, pretty much if, you know, if Google calendar shut down, that would be the end of my life because I would not know what I was supposed to do next. But I was shocked this year in teaching, you know, after the year of having students at home or the few months that we had them home and they came back, um, we started the year, use. I used Google Classroom in my classroom. So we started the year mostly using Google Classroom and because so many students were gone um, and then because I had so many students in quarantine and whatever else. But as the year went on and restrictions started to loosen a bit and we had more students there, I started shifting back to some more paper, pencil kind of things or whatever else. And I was surprised at how much students appreciated that and how much they just wanted a break from all of the technology. And in some ways, I feel like, oh, okay, there, there are other ways to do this. It's just because there's a fancier and shinier and more complicated way to do it, that doesn't mean it's the only or best way. I mean, obviously, our brains are changing to adapt to technology. I don't think that's a bad thing per se. Our brains change to adapt to reading too. Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: so we gave something up when we learned how to read. We gave up some of the other skills so that we could adapt to reading. I don't think anyone would think that was a bad thing. We're doing the same thing with technology. And I love the point of, you know, teaching students how to use it, but also not making them use it all the time.
0: Um, I always like to say, because I work as a tech Specialist, I work with other tech coaches in their buildings, and I always say it's the right tech for the right situation, right? Paper and pencil is a technology, and if the situation calls for it, use it and I think offering our kids a variety of options is also really empowering for them and also helps them learn how to make it as judgments and assessments of you know what's most appropriate for the situation and what I need to demonstrate, what I need to show. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that like. A variety is healthy. Carol?
2: Yeah, I also agree with that. I give my students the option. We are one-to-one in my classroom, but sometimes kiddos just don't want to be staring in front of a screen because it's not as engaging. And sometimes they like to be a little tactile with like seeing the paper and have it uh, kind of unfold in front of them. So with every assignment that I have, they have the option to either submit it through Canvas or I will print it for them and they can Just do it the old school way, I guess you would call it. But I think that there's merit behind letting the students have the choice in the type of style that they would prefer to see that learning unfold. Um, Otherwise, if they're always just being forced to use that technology, then I think it's going to create a world in which they don't want to be engaged or automatically they will associate a Chromebook with this again So I feel like giving them that opportunity of choice is empowering for them because it feels like they had the ability to decide for themselves the way in which they wanted to learn. And you know like kids, if they have the choice, they're going to want to do it more so as opposed to not feeling like they had a say in the matter. So I think that autonomy is important to breed not just innovation in our own classrooms, but to encourage the kids to go a little further in their own learning.
0: One of the thoughts that I had about like curating educational resources, not only for my own sanity, like I need to keep track of like where, like what class I want to use this resource for or how I want to use it. Um, So I have like apps that I use to do all that. But I think it's important to go a step further and show our kids how to organize information. And like if you look at any student's Google Drive, (laughs) it's a nightmare. (laughs) but that's that's a life tool that they're going to have to learn is like okay you have all this information in your own assignments assignments from classes like how are you going to organize all that how are you going to structure it and if they don't get explicit instruction on how to like manage all of that then it's just chaos and they you know have, don't know what direction to go so i think kind of peeling back the curtain and showing the students like this is how I function as a teacher with lots of information. And this is how I organize all this data. Um, these are tools that you can use. And then give them, them the option of like, you know, how, how they want to engage with it. But I think that is something too that we need to be explicit about. Uh, Deborah.
3: Yeah, I completely agree on that. Um, I mostly teach freshmen this year. And uh, thanks to the last year and a half, they're, they're a little bit behind in maturity in a lot of ways as a group. Just generally speaking, there's exceptions for everything. But uh, between my class and the freshman success classes, we've tried really hard to help them manage their lives because high school is a lot. And if we can get them to have folders for each class that are physical so they can put the paper things in there and find them again instead of just shoving a black hole of the bag, they're more successful. And the exact same thing is true with She's frozen. <laughs> this hasn't happened before
2: <laughs> Technology zero <laughs> okay
1: did we get to all your questions?
0: um we Didn't, but that's okay because I think we had a really valuable conversation. Um, Deborah, if you can hear us, I'm sorry that you got frozen. I think you had some really good things to say about like setting our kids up for success and like helping them at those like turning points. I think she's going to try to join again. Um, But yeah, like I think, I guess the takeaway message from this discussion is that I don't want teachers to be scared of technology and like, being overwhelmed by it because you're right. There is a lot out there, but finding the tools that work for you and that will like help our students, I think is, is the ultimate goal as it is for any teacher, but the the possibilities are endless. Carol.
2: I think that's probably a discussion that you could have on another day is how do you make technology more approachable for teachers who feel like they're a part of the uh, technology divide where, on the side where it seems so overwhelming. And because there are so many different things, you know, like think of all the times that, you know, you've got like a a technology person in the building who's saying, showing them like the newest app, and you have like 30 minutes exposure to it, and then you walk away. And then it's another week. And it's like, here's another one. So it feels like for some people, there is so much going on. But for some people, that probably might be a turnoff or a reason why they opt not to input. Different types of technology in their own teaching practices because of the overwhelming amount of options that teachers might be able to utilize in their practice.
0: Yes, I love that. Thank you. Um, As we wrap up, is there how can people follow you if you want to drop your social medias or anything that you'd like to plug? Um, I always tell people that they can follow me on Twitter. And then, Trent, you mentioned Goodreads, which I have to say, your reviews are, like, top-notch, so.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I definitely don't want anyone to follow me on Twitter. Um, (laughs) That's my secret account, but yes, Goodreads is a great way to follow me.
0: Awesome. And it's okay if you don't have any, like, I know that that's that's a thing that... It's different for everybody. But thank you so much for joining us on this session of the USET podcast. Um, I really valued our conversation and I appreciate you. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today to discuss how to find, organize, and curate educational resources, especially within the liberal arts. I love discussing with Trent, Deborah, and Carol about the essential skills found in the liberal arts and how technology can be used to best facilitate valuable learning. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what technology is used, but rather how it is used to foster creative critical thinking and make the best overall human of our students. At the end of each episode this year, we will spotlight something in Utah that connects to the topic at hand. For this month, we would like to highlight Scribble. Scribble was briefly mentioned in the episode when Trent talked about how he used it in Nebo District. The Utah State Board of Education has secured a statewide contract to provide Scribble EDU Pro for all Utah K-12 educators and students. Scribble is a one-stop application for the research and writing process. Instead of using lots of different programs, Utah students can use Scribble to curate, annotate, cite, and write. The coolest thing about Scribble is the web extension that allows students to save their research from the web, PDFs, and databases. Then, in their Scribble library, they can annotate their research, looking critically at the arguments and evidence, organizing it with tags, and then when they are ready to use the material, Scribble imports their annotations and the citations directly into their Google Doc. They can even work collaboratively in real time with shared libraries. Ask your digital learning specialist or librarian to find out more about this awesome resource to find, organize, and curate research on the internet. Well, that is it for this month's episode of the USET podcast. Thank you for joining us again. If you want more USET goodness, join us for Utah Ed Chat on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. on Twitter or subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find at www.uset.org slash newsletter. Next month, we will be discussing using data to spark change with Brooke Anderson and Utah's Teacher of the Year for two. 2021 with John Arthur. See you next time.